We're going to look at a moment, <clears throat> James 2.19. But 2,000 years ago, last Thursday, Jesus Christ got up in the morning. He will never sleep again. He gets up in the morning and he tells his disciples to do what everybody else <clears throat> in Jerusalem is doing. Go get the Lord's Supper or, or the Passover meal ready. Go get that done. So they go into town. They get everything done. We don't know what he does that day. <clears throat> but my bet is he's preparing spiritually and physically for what's coming. He's the only one that knows what's coming. And so he gets there that night and in Jerusalem on that night, Right at sunset, trumpets will blow, and everybody in Jerusalem starts the Passover meal. These guys are no different. He sits down with them. <clears throat> it's interesting, in the New Testament, the Greek word for supper is literally to lay back, to recline, because that's what they did. This picture that you have <clears throat> is not correct. They had basically a U-shaped uh, table with one and, and large pillows that you would lay on your left side and recline, and then you'd eat with uh, your right hand. Obviously, and so the rabbi, the really important guy leading the supper, or the dad, would, would lay here on this pillow, and the place of honor would be on the left, with, which out going into detail we now know was where Judas was. He's in the place of honor and the other thing you do to give honor to somebody at the table is you would reach and dip meat or bread into a sauce and offer it to him, which is precisely what Jesus does. So they begin the meal. Now, there are several things that you did in the meal. One of them was you washed your hands, like the third thing you did. At this juncture, Jesus probably gets up and he walks over and he begins to wash Simon Peter's feet. Now, Peter being Peter, began to debate with him and say, oh no, Lord, I need to wash yours. Jesus said, no, we'll let this be for now, but I need to wash your feet. It was Jesus' statement to them that he didn't come at this moment to be served by them. He came to serve them by what he was about to do on the cross. He died for us. So, he finishes Peter's feet. In time, he and Judas have a little conversation and finally looks at Judas and he's able to whisper because just the two of them and he says, what you have to do, do it quickly. He's already told him that he didn't have to do it. He said, the Son of Man goes as it is written by him, as it is written in the Scripture about woe to the man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So he's already told him he doesn't have to do it, but Judas ignores him. Judas gets up and leaves. When he's gone, Jesus then institutes the Lord's Supper. They finish the meal. And they don't get this at this point. He takes a piece of bread and he breaks it and he passes it out to everybody, all 11 left, and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Then he takes the wine. He says, I want every one of you to drink from this because this is the new covenant in my blood. This is a key point. It reflects what John the Baptist said when Jesus first showed up on the scene. And John the Baptist said, Behold God's lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Every other sacrifice has been their lamb. 
If I'm a Jew and I sacrifice every year at the day of appointment, it's my lamb. I either bought it from somebody or I raised it, but it's my lamb. But now, on the first time, it is God's lamb, God's son, who is now the lamb whose blood will be shed. So, they drink it. Again, they don't have any idea. They just don't get it. So he walks them out and he begins to talk to them about the fact that uh, he's going to get smoked and they're going to hide like dogs. And of course, Peter, no, I won't do that. Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me, not just once, but three times. And of course, Peter protests. And so they leave Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where Abraham has sacrificed Isaac, they walk down a valley, the Kidron Valley, and they head up to the Mount of Olives. There's a little garden spot in the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. They head to Gethsemane, and they arrive there, and when they get there, Jesus, on the way from Jerusalem to Gethsemane, we know exactly what he said. He speaks to them, If you read John 13 through 17, you know exactly what Jesus Christ said to them. First thing he says is they're walking through the valley. It's going to take some time. They're going to go down the valley up and then back up the mountain. His first thing he says to them is, I want you guys to understand, I'm the only hope anybody's got. He says, I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. First thing that he says to them as they walk toward Gethsemane. And then he tells them, I'm leaving. But I will not orphan you. I will send you the Spirit of God. He will indwell you. He will do everything you need for him to do. Then he talks about the fact that he says, I'm the true vine. You connect with me and you will bear fruit. It is my purpose for you that you bear fruit. And then he says what they're about to experience. He says, the world hates me. They're going to hate you as well. The whole reason that ISIS arises, the whole reason for the hatred of America is because we side with the Jews and we side with Jesus Christ. The world hates those of us that stand with Jesus. He talks about the Spirit working. He says, even that sorrow that you possess from the world will turn into joy. I have conquered the world. And then he prays. Three things. Prays for himself. He says, Father, the hour has come. The same glory I had with you at the beginning of the world. Let me have it again so that people will know my death is valid. Number two, he prayed for them. And then he prayed for us. He said, Father, I pray for those who will believe through their word. So he finishes the prayer. They get to Gethsemane. He takes eight of the guys and he says, hang here. And he takes Peter, James, and John who have seen so many things the others have not seen and are closer to Jesus than the others by their own choice. And he pulls them aside and he says, okay. The only time we find in the Bible when he does this, he says, okay. I need, 
I need you to pray for me. So he leaves them. He walks over under some other olive trees and he kneels. Now, there are millions of both angels and demons. One third of heaven fell to Satan. Satan understands something that a lot of us don't grasp. Genesis 1, God's king, and I am the prince. Adam and Eve are the prince of this world. Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve don't trust the father anymore and line up with Satan, Satan becomes the prince of the world. That is exactly what Jesus calls him in the Gospels. He's not king because nobody usurps God, but he's the prince of this world. We deeded this planet over to him so that if he can keep things as they are, we go to an internal banishment from the Father. He stays here. That's why Jesus made the statement, now is the prince of this world cast out. Now is the prince of this world judged. And so Satan understands. And there were two strategies for Satan with Jesus Christ. Two. We've already seen the first one for the first 33 years of his life. and Essentially really hard the last three. And that is he wants to make Jesus disqualified for the cross. If he can get him to where he sins, if Jesus can look at Mary Magdalene with lust, if he can lose it with his disciples and slap them, if he can curse somebody, if he can just anything, if Satan can just get him to do one little thing that will disqualify him from being able to pay for my sin on the cross, he wins. But he can't do that. So now he comes to the second tactic, which is, if I can't disqualify him, then I'll keep him off the cross. And so we find Jesus in Gethsemane praying a prayer that a lot of us really honestly struggle with. Father, let this cup, which is the cross that we celebrate, that we just sing about, let this cup pass from me. Why would he pray that? And he does it three times. And the third time, the emotion is so deep that the capillaries in his sweat glands burst open, and he literally sweats blood. The reason for the difficulty is because these guys aren't praying. But why is this such a struggle for him? Because I, I know the one part I don't understand, or one of the many parts I don't understand. I'm not sure I'll ever understand it, even after death. He's God in the flesh. I know in my own life, there are things I still look back. Sometimes when I open my closet, there's still things I look at that still just make me sick. I'm still embarrassed. I'm still bothered. There's still shame, which is why I keep the door shut as much as I can. I know he's forgiven me, but I have a lot of trouble forgiving myself. And so there's deep shame there. Jesus has never known sin, has never known shame, has never known guilt. And what's about to happen, that he knows that Satan is now absolutely painting to him, is, buddy, you're going to eat everything 
that you've never known. Every filthy comment, every lewd joke, every nasty molestation, every bit of filth this world has ever done to each other and to your father is going on your back today. You're going to eat it. And I will sit back and enjoy it. With him is every demon in the universe howling with Satan going, yeah, how do you like that? Jesus. So the emotion is huge. And so he says, Father, let this cup pass from me, but if there's no other way, and it's what you want, I'll go. So the third time, bloody, sweaty, he grabs the guys up and he says, all right, it's done. When he leaves Gethsemane, Satan's hope of disqualifying him and stopping him are finished. Don't let anybody ever tell you Satan wanted Jesus on the cross. It is the last thing he wanted. He's on the cross, Satan loses. He's off the cross, Satan wins. He's lost in Gethsemane. So he wakes up the disciples, and just about they turn, here comes Judas with a bunch of men. They walk up to Jesus, and Judas walks over, and obviously Jesus is nondescript. He's not the tallest guy in the crowd. We need to bear that in mind in the future. He doesn't have anything distinctive about him, which is why Judas comes up and kisses him because there's nothing they can say, oh yeah, look at him, he's got this or that. He's nondescript, he's an average guy. Judas kisses him and Jesus recoils. Says, you betray me with a kiss? Simon Peter pulls the sword out, aiming for a guy's head. He's nervous, he misses, cuts his ear off. Jesus puts the ear back on Malchus, servant of the high priest. All the disciples run, they take Jesus, and it's probably, I'm guessing 10 or 10.30 at night. Well, everybody in Jerusalem has had the Passover meal. A lot of wine, a lot of food. They're sated, they're asleep, they're gone. They have to wake everybody up, so they take Jesus to Caiaphas' house, who's the high priest and son of the law, the previous high priest, Annas, and they get him in the house, and so the disciples are gone except Ten leave, two stay. They're outside. Judas and Peter, they will stay all night. Both of them. Well, they kind of mess with him. But when they finally get the 70 members of the Sanhedrin in, they bring in the men and they start the trial. You can't have a trial at night. You've got to have defense witnesses. And you've got to get at least two witnesses to agree. None of which they do. But it doesn't matter to these guys. They're what they are. So they begin to bring in guys to say, yeah, I saw him do this. And then somebody else say, yeah, I also saw him do that. But an amazing thing, because he has no sin, and Satan was not able to disqualify him from the cross, nobody agrees on anything he's done. Listen, you get my wife and kids together, they agree everything I've done. They can't find anybody to agree anything about Jesus because he hasn't done anything. 
So now they're really chat because their little plan's falling apart. Finally, the high priest gets smart. He looks at Jesus and says, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And Jesus looks at him and says, after this, you will see the Son of Man coming on clouds with power. Well, that's it. The high priest loses it. He rips clothes. The other 70 rip, and they go after Jesus. And we all know what it is. If you have a temper, you know it spills out, and it burns itself out pretty quickly. So they're just hitting him and hitting him and hitting him. Probably hitting each other as much as they're hitting him, but they're bashing all they can because they hate him. Fury spent, they're done. They got to wait because these are law abiding guys. They can't pronounce judgment on him until after dawn. So they wait. First streaks of dawn come. Caiaphas sends a message to Pilate, who generally doesn't care anything about the Jews, but they are powerful. He doesn't want any kind of mess in his jurisdiction. So they send a message to him, you better meet us, we have an issue. And it's serious. So they take Jesus down, and they walk him from Caiaphas' house. They're going to take him over to where Pilate is, and they're walking him along. And when they do, two disciples left. Judas sees him, and he's shocked. That they're taking him to Pilate. And then he does the craziest thing in the world. He walks into the temple. Has the 30 pieces of silver. And he looks at him and says, look, I, I, I was wrong. I mean, I, I, he had no idea they were going to take him to kill him. He just hacked because Jesus embarrassed him the Tuesday night before. And he wants a little revenge. He had no idea it was going that far. And so they said, it's not our problem. He takes the money, throws it in. And then he goes out and does this really weird thing. He kills himself. Now, you don't go to hell because you kill yourself. But you do go to hell when you miss the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. This guy has seen how many people Jesus forgive. I mean, they brought a woman to him one day who's still in the sheets. And he say, forgave her virtually a moment after the act. He's forgiven countless people. He's cast demons out of demoniacs. He's forgiven thousands. Why in the world does he not, when he realizes he's messed up, why does he not run over and go, Jesus, Jesus, I am so sorry. Would Christ have forgiven him? Absolutely. Why does he not do it? You walk enough with the enemy, and pretty soon he takes away your ability to see anything. So he kills himself. The other guy is Peter. Peter hears the rooster. And he turns and he sees Jesus. And the Bible says Jesus turns. And they make eye contact. And Peter begins to weep uncontrollably. And he runs home. So they take him to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to jack with him. So he sends him to Herod. Herod gets him. Herod's heard all sorts of stuff about him. Herod's the one that killed John the Baptist, and Herod thinks this is great. So he looks at Jesus and says, hey, man, show me a little miracle. Do a little fire burning, a little lightning. 
Heal somebody, do something. What do you think? Jesus says nothing. And finally here, he says, oh, this is ridiculous. Put a robe on him, a little crown, make fun of him, mock him. Send him back to Pilate. Pilate is an amazing man. He's powerful. Afraid of nothing except Jesus. They bring him back to Pilate. And he's bothered. Now, we don't know the whole story, obviously, but it's interesting what happens. In the dialogue between Jesus and Pilate, Pilate pulls him aside, basically interrogates him. Do you hear what they're saying against you? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus, what you say? They have a little dialogue, and finally Jesus looks at him and he says, let me explain something to you. You wouldn't have any authority over me except the authority my father has given you in heaven. And now he's terrified. So he begins to back up. He's got the Jews who are just emotionally rot. And he's got Jesus that he's scared of, and he's trying to figure this thing out. And all of a sudden, boom, light bulb goes off, and he goes, that's right. Pulls one of his guys in and says, listen, who's the worst guy downstairs in the dungeon? Barabbas. Bring him up. So he gets Barabbas on the dice, and he brings Jesus out, and he says, I'll tell you what I'll do. I can do this, we do this every year here at Passover, I'll cut you a deal, you can have Jesus to be killed, or Barabbas who has assaulted you and murdered some of you, and you can have him dead, I'll give you either one, you, take, you make the call. So he steps back, and the Bible says that the chief priests and elders ask for a minute, pretty much, and they walk among the crowd. Now these are the same people who five days earlier have thrown palm branches and coats and said, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who came to them in the name of the Lord. They're sitting here and they walk among these people. Bible doesn't record what they say, but when they're done walking among them in about five minutes, they get up and say, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let Barabbas go kill Jesus. How do you change in five days and five minutes? Because I guarantee you what they did is they walked among that crowd and said, Do you think he's the Messiah? Yeah. Well, if he's the Messiah, can he die? No. Now let's test him. We've told you for years he's a con man. Everything he did is do through the power of demons, and he's conned everybody. We think he's conned you. Here's the great test. If he's the Messiah, they can't kill him. Let's take a shot at this. And the people go, yeah, let's check this out. So now, they turn. Now, while the conversation's going on, Pilate gets a text on his Fitbit. It's from his wife. She says, don't have anything to do with that righteous man. I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. Well, now the stomach churns again. He's nervous again. It's okay, though. And then they come up and they ask for Jesus to be killed and Barabbas to be let go. And he looks at him and he begins to argue with the crowd. And they begin to lose it. 
And Pilate realizes it gets crazy, major revolt. They'll recall me back to Rome and I'll lose all my status. So finally he says, all right, all right, all right. I'll give you Jesus. You let Barabbas go. And then he does the dumbest thing any man could ever do. He says, bring me some water. So they bring him a basin of water and he sticks his hands in there. And he pulls him out and he says, I am innocent of the blood of this man. Don't ever wipe off the blood of Jesus Christ. So they take Jesus to the cross. They drop him. And at this point, the people are crazy because they really do believe they've been caught. So they're yelling at him, mocking him, making fun of him. And he begins to speak. He's going to hang there six hours, nine to three. Because six is the number of a man. It takes six hours for God to pour all my sin and all your sin on his back. So he's going to hang there for six hours. When they drop him in that ground, You don't think every angel up there has a drawn sword and they want to come and clean this planet? I think it's why the first thing he says is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And God honors the prayer and holds them back. Only disciple that shows up at the cross is John. Shows up with Mary, Jesus' mother. Makes an unusual statement. Says, John, behold your mother, woman. Behold your son. Why would he call his mother woman? Because he wanted her to understand just because she raised him didn't mean she was any different than any of the rest of us. She's got to kneel at the cross just like all of us do. John takes her home. Two thieves on each side, they mocked him. Finally, one thief says, get off his back. We deserve what we're doing. He does not. And he looks over at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus pushes himself up, gets a breath and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Pretty soon darkness falls. You can feel it. And you hear him from the cross say, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He says, I thirst. They give him some wine. He doesn't want it because they don't want to lose any sort of processing what he's going through. And finally, right around 3 o'clock, he says, it's finished. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he dies. They bury him. The way they sealed tombs, they had massive rolling rocks. And you'd have a little U-shaped indention in the ground. So you could roll that rock this way. But once it fell into that U-shape, nobody can move it. So the rich guy, Joseph of Arimathea, one of, the, one of the Pharisees, member of the Sanhedrin, comes, asks for the body of Jesus. They put it in the tomb. They drop this rock. It's done. He's dead. He's buried. 
Boy, the Pharisees, Sadducees are going, this is great. We got rid of that guy. They are smart, though. They go to Pilate and said, look, the guy said he'd come out of the grave. We don't trust his disciples not to steal us. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to give us a couple guards put up there so this doesn't happen. Pilate said, yeah, I don't care. Deal with it. So they put a couple Navy SEAL Roman guards up there. They're doing shifts. And you got to understand, the Romans hated the Jews. Jews hated the Romans. So if you're one of those Roman guards, you're hoping that these knucklehead disciples come in so you can knock some heads. You're hoping. Sunday morning. Daylight. Getting close. Soldiers are thinking, yeah, they'll come soon. And they are so pumped. In the Old Testament, when an angel appears, everybody's frightened. One angel in the Old Testament one night killed the entire Brasses Valley. These are not women in dresses, which we have in our passage. These are bad dudes. That's the Hebrew. These guys turn around, they hear some noise, they turn around with their swords, and they look, and there's two angels going, How's it going? They're down and out for the count. They roll the stone. He comes out. So he's alive. He does not go back in, which proves what? The resurrection really proves one central thing. Lazarus comes out, but he goes back in. You and I die, we go in, we don't come out. Only one being has ever come out and not gone back in, and that's Jesus. Why? Because he's the only being that didn't die for his sin. When I go into the ground, it's because I am a sinner. Jesus went in the ground and came out because he died for my sin, not his. God took my filth and put it on his back. I said, okay, preacher. I'm good then. I mean, I believe that. I really do, so I'm okay. That's why I'm here today. I am good. I believe that. Listen to James. You believe God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Believing the story will not keep you out of hell. He said, what what I have to do? You don't do anything. But here's the distinction. You have to believe that what Jesus did, you need personally. And you have to come to a point where you say, you know what, Jesus? And here's the point you have to come to. And if you don't come to this point, you can't be saved. If you do, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you can be. But here it is. You have to come to the point where you look at Jesus and say, look, I don't want in my life anything that put you on that cross. I don't want it. I want to be forgiven for anything in my life that caused you to die. And Jesus, I want you to put in my life everything that qualified you for the cross. And when that's your heartbeat, and you believe that enough to kneel before that cross and ask Jesus to do that, you will 
be saved. You say, well, how do you know that? Because the Bible says anybody that calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is the offer we make today. Let's pray. Father, there's somebody in this room that just, maybe today's the first time they've got it. They're older, older man, older woman, younger, child, youth, teenager. Father, let today be the day that no matter what anybody might say about them or think about them, that they don't care, they only care what you think about them. And let today be the day they surrender to your son. Father, I still go back to the quote, I don't know how we say no to your son who said yes to the cross. Make that a reality in our lives this morning. In Jesus Christ's name. The head's bowed and your eyes closed. If you have never met Jesus, staff and I are here at the front. You say, well, I want to join the church. I don't want you to take my money. We don't care anything about your money. We don't care anything about you joining the church. We do care about you finding Jesus Christ. If you've already found him and God's calling you to be a part of this fellowship, we want you to do that. But as God speaks to your heart this morning, you come.